Noor Jahan Bolden was just living life. She was enjoying her time with her family, visiting up in Canada, going to a wedding, and then suddenly life changed. Violence happened. Senseless violence changed the rest of her life. What did she do? How did she cope with that? We're going to hear her story today. It's a good one. Stick around. This is Johnny with Civil-ish. Welcome to Civil-ish with Johnny Bird. Today, I'm so excited to have Noor Jahan Bolden on today. She is an well, I'll leave that up to her. She's got so many things that she does, I can't properly do it justice. So, Noor Jahan, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to connect with you. Now, I just said that I was going to leave it up to you. So, that's my first question that I really like to start with everybody Who are you, and what makes you, you? Well, like you said, that's a really complex question for me, um, but I'll try to simplify it and break it down as as into bite-sized pieces as much as possible. So again, my name is Noor Jahan. I, am, I have so many varying identities. I am a Muslim woman. I'm married to a Christian man. I, I am a gun violence survivor, and the gun violence survivor part is probably the most standout part of my identity. Back when I was 21 years old, I was actually a dancer and I was in college going into my senior year. I went on vacation that summer to my cousin's wedding in Toronto, Canada of all places. And I went out at night after the wedding. We wanted to go out dancing or karaokeing or, you know, I was 21. I just wanted to go out and explore the city. And so my cousins and I went out to a a nightclub. It was the only thing open on a Sunday night. Went to the rooftop just to talk and hang out. And the place was packed. And we were just talking about going out to get milkshakes afterwards. And all of a sudden, there was a shooting. And we heard bullets spraying. I immediately fell onto the ground and knew I had been shot. I didn't know where I had been shot. But I knew the bottom half of my body was numb. And I kept saying, I got shot, I got shot, everybody get down. And it was just chaos, you know, people running around screaming. And the man next to me had been shot three times. Another man had been shot in the foot. I found out that I had been shot in the leg. It took the paramedics 30 minutes to get to the rooftop and carry us out. By then, the man next to me had already died. And I, you know, went home to California with my leg wrapped up a week later um, in a cast. I was in a wheelchair for a good portion of my senior year. And the physical injuries were tough because it shattered my tibia. And I actually had a bone nonunion, which means that it never fully healed So eight years later, I ended up having to get a rod and screws. I was walking with a cane for most of my 20s. But the emotional recovery was the hardest part. And a lot of the work that I do in the world when we're getting down to who am I, especially in a broader scope in this world, the work that I do is about sharing the pain that I went through because I didn't talk about it for almost a decade. 
I hadn't shared my story out loud. I had never shared it publicly. It took me seven years to share it with my husband, with somebody I had been married to already for about five years. And um, and I only did that because I got desperate. You know, all of the mass shootings that were taking place were so triggering, so overwhelming. And we had had a um, an active shooter drill at my workplace. And we had to hide under the desk and pretend there was a shooter in the room. And I just completely lost it. And it, I kind of went into this deep depression and decided I needed to go see a therapist. I tried therapy before and it never really connected. So this time when I went, I told him, look, I just want you to tell me how to fix myself. And so he asked me, have you ever told anybody what happened to you that night? And I was walking with a cane at the time. So I was like, yeah, everybody knows that I've been shot. And he said, no, but have you, have you ever told anybody what actually happened, what you went through, how you felt in the moments, how you're feeling now? And I realized that nobody in my life knew what I was going through. Nobody in my life knew what happened that night in detail. They all said that they just thought I never wanted to talk about it because it was so painful. And they were right. And at the same time, because I had never said it out loud, it was just eating me alive. You know, I, it would haunt me in the shower and in the car on the way to work. And it started, I started succumbing to all my fears. I was scared to go to work. I was scared to send my kids to school. I was scared to go outside. And so when I started sharing my story for the first time, I realized that all of those things that were, that were just eating at me, the guilt, the pain, the, the remorse, you know, the mourning, I wasn't alone. And I started realizing that other people had the capacity to hold space for that pain and that other people were actually going through the same thing as I was, whether they were shooting survivors themselves. Most people don't realize how many human beings in this country have been impacted by gun violence, either been shot themselves, lost a loved one, been present during a shooting. All of them are survivors. And whether they had experienced gun violence themselves or experienced something completely different, but it was traumatic enough for them to shut down, for them to start living in fear. When they heard me share my story, it was inspiring to them. And I knew how they felt because I, the first time I heard another survivor share her story, it was inspiring to me. She's the one who got me to speak out publicly. And so my work in this world has been about sharing that, sharing my story and encouraging other people to do the same, encouraging other people to face their fears, to overcome them, that hiding from your fear only shrinks your world, and that the only way to overcome fear is to face it head on. And so in doing that, I travel, I speak. I don't travel right now because we're in quarantine, <laughs> but I'm also a writer. I do whatever I can to share my story and encourage others to do the same. Well, wow. see, that reminds me, we don't like to show weakness in this world. Yes. But we also realize that, and we think we're the only ones going through things, that we also succumb to that in some level. And it's so unfortunate because there are so many people going through the same thing or going through something similar, something big, something life-changing, at least life-changing to them. Yeah. And we don't share our stories. Yeah. We want to put on a show. And people praise us for putting on a show. I remember coming back from Canada 
rolling around in a wheelchair and people telling me, look how strong she is. Look how positive she is. Because I would just smile all the time. And I would say things like, I'm not going to let this stop me. You know, I, and people loved that. They praised it. And so I thought, that's who I need to be. Even the paramedics, when they were taking me to the hospital from the nightclub, they told me I was the most entertaining and positive gun violence. I was telling all kinds of jokes. I, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> but I was in shock. You know, I just watched a man next to me die. And I, I was trying to hold it together. I was trying to hold my body physically together. I didn't have the capacity to deal with the emotional side of that. So I was avoiding it. And I got so much praise for it that I felt like this is what people want. This is the way. This is what I need to be. This is what I need to do. And the way that we think strength manifests in people, we think strength is about sucking it up and moving on and holding it together. But the truth is the people we admire the most are the ones who are strong enough to be vulnerable, are the ones who are strong enough to say that they're having a hard time, or the the ones that are strong enough to just tell their story in a really vulnerable and honest and raw way. And that's how we all heal together. It inspires other people to do the same thing. It's powerful. You mentioned holding it together. It's the, I don't even, I wanted to say Western virtue, but it's more than that because it comes from Mm -hmm. Greek philosophy, the idea of stoicism. Just keep it together. Don't show it at all. And I wonder if we can connect the idea of stoicism or keeping it together and the prevalence of mental health issues today. 150%. Oh my goodness. Yes. It is a disconnect from the human beings around you. When you think that you can hold everything together, not only are you telling everybody else that they have to do the same, but you're blocking people out of your most beautiful parts. That pain is important for people to see. It's important for you to have other people witness that pain. But it makes me uncomfortable if you're in pain. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I know because we haven't we haven't learned how to hold space for other people. We don't teach that because the truth is, this is what I had to learn the most. And my husband hates it when I tell this story, but I'm telling it anyways because I have to. Okay, and it's that the first time you know I said that I went to that counselor. The counselor told me I needed to tell my story, and I was on the verge of just breaking completely. And I couldn't hold it in for one more day. So I went home that night and I was like, look, I need to tell you my story. I just need to say everything out loud. You don't have to do anything. I just need to, I just need to do it. And he was like, man, I'm really tired. You know, can we do this a different night? Had a long day at work. And I was like, just, just let me talk. Okay. (laughs) Just, it's not going to take that long. So I start telling this story and I told it in a way that I had never told it before. I talked about the guilt. I talked about the pain. I talked about, I was shaking. I was crying. I was being my most vulnerable. By that point in my life, I don't know if there was ever a time that I was that vulnerable. I didn't understand the power of vulnerability. And so I was allowing myself to fully crack open. And as I'm crying and shaking and sharing all of this, I look over and my husband fell asleep on the couch. <laughs> oh. oh my God. I know. He hates it when I tell this story because he's like, it makes me sound so insensitive. 
But the truth is that I didn't do a good job of setting him up and setting myself up for success and opening up in that moment, right? He had clearly told me that he he didn't have the capacity at that point to hold space for me because he was tired. And there are times where we will we'll get to the point we're about to break, which ideally we, we open up before we're at that point. But the honest truth is most of us don't. We wait until we're about to break. And then we go to whoever's closest to us or whoever we feel like we can trust in that moment. And we pour everything out at one time without giving them any context, without asking them for what we need in that moment. So one of the things that I teach, and I learned this from that experience with my husband, is to before you open up to somebody, to let them know exactly what you need. And most people are like, well, but I don't know what I need. I'm, I'm breaking. I don't, I don't know what I need in that moment. What most of us need in that moment is space. We need people to hold space. So what I teach is say, hey, do you have this amount of minutes and be as accurate as you can about how much time you need so that they're not in the middle of you shaking and crying, answering a phone call or having to go to a meeting? But let them know, look, I I just need an hour. I just need 30 minutes. I just need 10 minutes, whatever it is, and be honest about that amount of time. And then tell them what you want them to do. Because the truth is most times we don't want advice. We don't need to be fixed. We don't need anything except for you to sit there and listen. And when I'm done speaking, just to say, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Or maybe give me a hug. It's the most simple thing in the world, and it is so hard for us to do because we're taught to fix people. And whenever we try to fix other people, it never works. Unless they're actively asking for advice, trying to fix them makes them feel like you think there's something wrong with them or you think they're broken or you're uncomfortable with them, right? So it's it's always more powerful if we can just Keep that silence and hold that space. And when you do it for the first couple of times, you start to realize, wait a second, I can hold space for other people's pain. It's not hard. It's not, it's not as hard as I'm making it out to be because I'm trying to fix people all the time and I'm always do it, doing it wrong. But if I just let them feel the pain and sit in the pain, most people come out of it themselves. Most people will then feel like, oh my goodness, that person didn't judge me. That person didn't think I was I had lost my mind. That person didn't think all of the things that I assumed they were going to think <laughs> before talking to them. Maybe I can get help. Maybe I and then maybe they'll be more open for the advice or maybe they'll start trying to figure out their own solutions like going to see a professional or finding a resource that works well for them. One person I was talking to after I was describing situations, they called it the ministry of presence. Yes. Being there for someone. Yes. Not offering advice, which is very difficult for a man. Yes. And it's as we all kind of internalize that masculinity that we praise so much in this country, it's hard for everybody, right? We are taught that fixing things is the noble thing to do. Of course. Why would you come to me otherwise? <laughs> exactly. But if you think about who who most people turn to, most people turn to somebody who they who they believe will listen, right? Somebody who will just hold space for them. And when they don't, 
So if you've tried it, if anyone who's listening is somebody who's experienced a big trauma or a small trauma, something that's impacting them in a big way, and they've tried to open up about it, and the response is, oh, but it's such a blessing that you're alive. Or have you have you ever tried getting help for this? You know, I know some resources. You know, if they if they've gotten that kind of response, it can shut you down. It can make you feel like there's nobody that understands me. Everybody thinks that I'm this, this, and that. Everybody's judging me. But the truth is, if you ask for what you need, it almost doesn't matter who you're talking to. Anybody can hold space if you let them know exactly what you need. I need this amount of time and I just need you to listen without any kind of feedback, without anything. Just say thank you at the end. And if they mess up, because most people do, because they want to fix everything, you just remind them, I really, I don't even need to, I don't need anything. I don't need anything but silence. Thank you. (laughs) And it can sound weird, but it is... It is mind-blowingly helpful. And then you're training them to be a person that you can go to, and you're also training yourself. They'll then recognize that, wait, maybe this person can also hold space for me. And that's how we create community and connection. That's how we get close to people. I'm seeing the value in this tip that you're providing right now. I can think of spaces right now that I need to use that. So that's really good. Right? It's how we fall in love with each other. I hadn't thought about that one. That's a different way to put it, but okay. <laughs> but it is. And we I'm not talking necessarily about romantic love, although it's that too. But when you see somebody's greatest weaknesses and when you hold them in those weaknesses, there's no way that you can witness that and hold space for them in that way and not truly love them. It's how we create the deepest connections in our friendships and our family in our romantic relationships it's so powerful hmm. now you're turning into marriage therapist <laughs> I, just a magic rule yeah i it is a magic rule it's a very good one so as you and you've told a lot of your story you've shared a lot of good stuff i want to make sure that we hit this yeah it's a kind of a two-part how did you come out stronger on the other side? I think maybe you've already hit that. We just want to make sure. And how does this inform your parenting and your relationships? You talked about relationships some. Let's talk about parenting as the second part. Oh, my goodness. A thousand percent. It has completely changed my parenting. My parenting prior to opening up. And this has been an evolution, right? Everybody, you don't just open up one time and you're like, I'm freed. Everything's good now. It's that you start to learn, it's like you're growing these muscles of vulnerability and you start to learn to allow yourself to be vulnerable, both in relation to the things that have happened in your past and also when it comes to following your dreams or doing the things that scare you the most looking forward. And this kind of combines the first question and the second, you know, how I became stronger on the other side and how it's impacted my parenting. How I became stronger on the other side is that this opening up and this vulnerability creates a resilience. It makes it so that I understand that no matter what I go through, I can be held, I can be carried, I can let go, I can surrender on the other side and find joy on the other side by facing whatever it is that scares me the most. 
It also helps that I am friends with so many survivors across the country and across the world. So I know people who are quadriplegic, people who have lost their children, people who have experienced things that just feel just mind-blowingly devastating. And I've seen them find joy on the other side of it. And that tells me that no matter what I experience, I'm going to be okay. And knowing that allows me, because my, my old belief was bad things happen to everyone and there's nothing you can do about it. The world is just chaos. But shifting that to I can survive anything and be happy on the other side, it creates this strength inside of me. And I used to parent my kids with fear. With I used to pass on the trauma that I had experienced. I would tell them, don't go over there. If you go over there, you're going to this, this, and that. Don't go in the street. If you go in the street, you're going to get hit by a car and die. I would tell them the ways that they could die if they do all of these things because I was terrified. And I thought that fear and understanding and internalizing fear kept you safe. That is what I placed on them. That is what I believe. That is how I lived. And once I realized that fear doesn't keep you safe, fear is just the edge of the world that you know. Once I realized that when you face those fears, your world actually expands, I realized that placing fear inside my kids wasn't helping and that I needed to address my own fears before I could address the fears that I had, that I had put inside of them. And as I started transforming and facing those fears, my kids saw it. My kids, as you probably already know, learn so much more from what we do than what we say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And when they saw me speaking on stages, they saw, I went skydiving. I started doing things that genuinely terrified me. And, and they saw me sharing my story. They saw me standing on stages crying and breaking down sharing my story, things that were that were clearly painful for me, but I was doing it anyways because I knew that it was it was powerful for me and for everybody who witnessed it. My kids started facing their own fears. So my oldest was terrified of heights. He was so scared of heights. And I remember the first time he was like, I'm going to go up on the roof to get the ball with my with his uncle helping him. <laughs> my brother helping. I'm going to go up on the roof to get the ball because I'm going to face my fear. And then he went rock climbing on this rock wall that they had at a fair. And he was like, I'm going to face my fear. And you could see him shaking. You could see him terrified. But he decided that he was going to face his fears. And then he wrote something at school that said, it was, who do you want to be like when you grow up? And he said, I want to be like my mommy because my mommy faces her fears and follows her dreams. And I realized that the most powerful thing that I could do as a parent, the most powerful thing I could do to protect my children was to face my own fears, was to address my own trauma, my own pain, was to pursue my own dreams And to bring them into that journey with me and to encourage them to do the same. And that to me, and that to them, I'm sure, has transformed everything. My kids inspire me so much in the ways that they face their own fears. And there's a balance, right? I'm raising 
three black boys in a country that doesn't always treat black boys like humans, in a country that doesn't value their lives in the ways that they value other lives. And so I recognize that I'm teaching them to do something that's inherently dangerous. To be free in this country can be inherently dangerous. To walk into a grocery store can be dangerous in this country when when gun violence is everywhere. To go to school can be dangerous. To go to work can be dangerous. And also, when I measure the difference between living in fear and allowing yourself to shrink versus living free and allowing yourself to be as big as you were meant to be in this world, as dangerous as that can be, I just have to believe that living free is the way to live. It's the way, it's the only way that I feel anchored in my joy. And it's the only way that that I feel like I can I can pass some of that beauty on to my children, recognizing that there's danger in being free and there's danger in living in joy. And also I would never ask for anything else. I was just writing that down. That was really good. Lots of value there, lots of good stuff. I really appreciate that. I was making some notes and thinking about things as you were talking there, and I'm so glad you shared it. I'm not going to ask maybe some of the other questions I had because I want to leave people with those thoughts. That last thing I want to ask you today is how can people follow your work and what you're up to these days. Absolutely. So even though we just talked about social media and how social media can sometimes be draining because of because of the highlight reel, right? Right. I think the best way right now, because we're all in quarantine, um, or for the most part in quarantine, is to follow me on social media. I when things were open, I would travel across the country and give speeches and do in-person workshops. Right now, I'm focusing on writing. And so if you follow me on social media, you get all the updates on you know what I'm up to. Instagram is my go-to. And my goal on Instagram and on social media in general is always to, to make more genuine connections in an online world that's not always genuine. That's, that's usually a reflection of that culture that we were just talking about, the culture of everything's great, everything's okay, the fake smile when even when we're struggling the most. So my goal on social media is to show the more raw and honest and vulnerable side of things. That sounds painful. It is, but it's also so freeing, you know, just in the same way that opening up about my story and having space held for myself is freeing, just in the same way as facing my fears and doing the dangerous thing is freeing. So is allowing myself to be whole and complex on social media. And in a time where, you know, I'm a Muslim woman and Muslim women aren't always portrayed in the media as whole and complex. There are a lot of stereotypes that go on and there are a lot of ways that we are portrayed as one dimensional. You know, I love the fact that social media in some way and writing in another way gives me the freedom to show my complexities and show 
all of it, you know, show the depth and show the, the heights of the joy at the same time. Well, my friends, you've heard it here. New- tried to say your name and I got it wrong. Let me try again. <laughs> Nur Jahan. Perfect. Bolden here today, who has dropped all kinds of value statements on us. Lots of wonderful things and reminded us of being vulnerable, of being open. Uh, that's the way that we're going to make a better society. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. This is wonderful. appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Noor Jahan today. She had a lot of good wisdom for us, not just about overcoming the traumas of violence, but about just going through life and how we need other people and how we need to communicate with those people. It was a good conversation. Thank you for taking part in it today. Have a good week. My name is Johnny Bird. This is Civil Ish. Civil Ish.